Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. We are in a series called Witnesses of the King. Today we'll be talking about waiting faithfully. Waiting faithfully. I want to welcome you to today's message. And I want to direct you to the book of Acts chapter 1 where we're going to talk about the disciples as they were waiting faithfully for the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, we're seeing uh, things begin to open up and to roll out and to introduce the themes that we're going to be seeing throughout this entire book. We looked at some of those last week, and we're looking at a few more this week. Uh, some of the themes that we'll be speaking about as we go through the series will be the, the Great Commission is what is being done here, what is being accomplished by the disciples, the importance of the resurrection, what they preach, what their other teaching was. We'll talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, who is really the primary actor in the book of Acts. We'll be talking about the importance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, how that works into the, the ideas that they have in the book of Acts and, and the things they present and the things they preach, and the importance of the return of Jesus Christ, and last but definitely not least of these themes that we'll be looking at as we go through this is the church. What is this church? How does it function? And how is it designed? And this is going to be very important for us as we go forward. But today we join the disciples in Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. And what we're going to find is that the disciples were waiting faithfully in Jerusalem in response to the command that the Lord Jesus gave them in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. So let's go there and read those. As we uh, get to this, what we find is that they had just seen the Lord Jesus ascend into heaven and he had just told them to remain in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them to be his witnesses. And so we come here and we find out what was happening between the time that Jesus ascended and the time that he sends the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Pentecost, uh, during the uh, Feast of Pentecost in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So here's what we have beginning in verse 12. Uh, it says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is where Jesus ascended from, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, let's begin fittingly with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you for your guidance for the disciples. We thank you for this word that you've given us and how your servant Luke has accounted this for us to understand and us to learn. Lord, I pray that we would receive this as it truly is, as the word of God. And Lord, I pray that we may be able to learn from the examples of these disciples and that, Lord, you may increase our faith to respond likewise to Jesus, to be obedient to all of his commands. We thank you, and it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have here uh, laid out here several things that I want us to see. And first of all is this. Um, I want to point out that they were having fellowship, that they were having fellowship together uh, during this time between when Jesus had uh, gone from them and the time of the day of Pentecost, which comes in chapter 2. So take a look at uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, verses 12 through 14. The first thing I want to show you is that they were indeed having fellowship together. In verse 14, it says they were with one accord. We looked at this briefly last time, and it is a major theme we'll explore through the whole book of Acts, is the church. And you cannot talk about the church of God without talking about their unity, the fact that they were together, that they had this fellowship together. They are together doing these things. And I want to point out just how together they were by pointing out some that were there. First of all, I want to point out what it says there in uh, verse 14. They were together with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Now, this is interesting. It might not seem interesting in our day because we've been doing church a long time and we've been uh, obeying this a long time that, that the women have are an integral part of all that we do in Christianity in the church today. But Christianity has been criticized because even though through it God reveals the truth, the order of the household, the order of the church, that God has assigned the leadership role to men in both. Society says that the church is unfair because society measures people according to worldly standards like authority, wealth, and control. But only in Scripture. Only in biblical Christianity do we have a definitive statement of the equal value of both men and women. 
Both are made in the image of God according to Genesis 1.27. It says, so he created man, and that means mankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you can see that this creation of mankind included both male and female to form the image of God. And here we have in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are already acting distinctly from the world in what they're doing because they have gathered together with the women. This was something that was unusual uh, compared to their time. Among the Jews and the pagans, they were often segregated in their worship and their prayers. And so in the context that they were in, this was slightly unusual, but this shouldn't be a surprise. They just spent 40 days hanging out with truth himself, Jesus Christ. Now, without regard to God, without bringing God into the picture, one could argue either men or women as better than the other, depending on the situation in which you place them. And this is what people do. People are always trying to separate men and women, always trying to argue about which is greater, which is better. And, and so they end up segregating them, segregating them in worship and prayer, in many other religions and in the secular world. There's this continual argument about the value of men and women and which ought to be valued more. Well, sometimes they win the argument, but when they win the argument one way or the other, it is based upon societal constructs and not on the revelation of God. And this ends up in oppression or dysfunction, whether you have a patriarchy or a matriarchy, either one ends poorly without the guidance of the truth of God. Only in scripture do men and women stand before God as equals, distinct in our strengths and our roles, but diverse and overlapping in these areas so that we are what's called complementary. In other words, we complement one another. No, not to say, oh, you look very nice today and oh, you look very nice too. Uh, no, this complementary meaning that they fit together, that there is a design that they would come together as one in a perfect design as a whole. And so here they are in the book of Acts praying together in Acts chapter 1 and all the way to this day, men and women in the church praying and serving together, all partaking of the faith, all serving in the ministry. Now look at who else is there at this time. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, who recognized before his birth that salvation would come through him. Look what she says here in Luke 147. Uh, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She recognized salvation coming through the baby that she was going to have. That of course being Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. And she was not being worshiped here. She's among them praying. She's not being prayed to. She's not specially interceding for the others. She is alongside the others as another believer, one saved by God's grace through faith. Also present is very interesting that his brothers are there. And this is interesting because his brothers did not initially believe him until after his resurrection. But there's no record anywhere here, and there's no view anywhere here that indeed there's a great unity that we'll see later between them all. But there's no uh, it, it, the, there's no attempt by the family here 
to exert their authority to be one up on the others uh, while he was our brother and yeah we didn't believe before but we're his brothers we we grew up with him and we know more than you you ought to put us in charge there's none of that going on here and so it's a diverse group mary uh the mother of jesus jesus brothers and indeed the the other apostles up to 120 people men and women this shows that the Lord was already working the unity that makes the church unique. Even before the day of Pentecost, they are exercising this unity that the Lord Jesus has designed for us. And there's a range here of people too. As we dig into the gospel narratives and the book of Acts, we find that in this group of 120, it ranged from fishermen to Pharisees, from devout Jews to the demon-possessed, from the poor to the prosperous. And here they all are together for common faith. This is the beauty of what we see in the church is this beautiful fellowship that we have. I'm going to splash this up here for just a moment so you see some of the cross-references that we're speaking of. Now the next thing that they are seen doing here, it's very clear, is that they were together primarily in the act of prayer. As we saw there in verse 14, there they are with one accord uh, in, you know, devoting themselves to prayer. And this is in the present continuous. In other words, this was something they were doing this entire time. They didn't have a single prayer meeting. It was their habit, day in, day out, throughout the day, praying together. And so this is not a New Testament thing. And this is important. This isn't even a, a Jewish thing or just a Christian thing or just a Bible thing. Most religions teach something about prayer because God has written on our hearts that we are to commune with Him, that we are to communicate with Him, us to Him, Him to us. These things are written on our hearts so that as we see any type of religion surface, they, they all have some type of prayer or connection with the divine. And even if they don't believe in the divine, they'll say, oh yeah, but you should meditate and focus your thoughts. You know, there's, there's always something to parallel this. Why? Because we can't completely silence something so critically important that is wired into our very nature. And that is this thing of prayer. Of all things, this is most fundamental in our faith. When God saves us, we enter into relationship with Him through repentance, which is a particular kind of prayer. And it is accompanied then by a, a changed behavior, by a changed life, and it is a life centered around prayer, first and foremost. Now, prayer is very important all the way through the book of Acts. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts is as we get to those major events and, and major things that are happening, it's always accompanied, interestingly, by prayer. I would argue that the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's the main character, and that the people of God, that is the church, are the supporting role, you know, as significant as the Holy Spirit, but yet the two together and their relationship, where do they intersect? Where does the Holy Spirit meet the church? It meets the church in prayer. 
And this church is often found in prayer in the book of Acts. And that prayer often precedes movements of God. Here it is, they're waiting for the day of Pentecost. They pray later in this chapter about choosing the 12th apostle. In uh, Acts chapter 4, as they... uh, as they rejoice after Peter and John had been released from prison and they pray for boldness, the place they were in was shaken. They prayed over the first deacons appointed in Acts 6. They pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. In Acts 9, Paul, after encountering Jesus on the Damascus Road, is found praying. Peter prays before raising a girl from the dead. In 10, Peter receives a vision of his ministry while he's praying. And in Acts chapter 12, the disciples are praying when Peter is in prison and he's released from prison. In Acts 13, a church at Antioch with fasting and praying appointed Paul and Barnabas to the ministry, the missionary work they were going to do. In Acts chapter 14, Paul's praying with the churches over the appointment of elders. In Acts chapter 16, uh, in the city of Philippi, Paul meets a woman, Lydia, and begins the church there at Philippi when they were there by the river praying. There's so much that intersects with prayer. There in Philippi, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to the Lord in the middle of the night when their chains are broken and the jailer and his family are saved. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is warned to, uh, Paul accounts that early in his ministry he was warned to leave Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 28, Paul is found praying before healing a sick man. It's obvious through the book of Acts that prayer was a central activity in the life of the church. It is essential in the spiritual life of any individual, and it is essential that we come together in prayer as a church. John Bunyan said this about prayer. He said, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. This is more than asking God for things. Prayer, Christian prayer, biblical prayer is worship and it is a fellowship. It is a communion with God. When we engage in prayer, we are actually communing with the Almighty. And this is powerfully important for us to understand this. Listen to what C.S. Lewis uh, said about prayer. He said this, he said, prayer in the sense of petition. Here, I'll, I'll put this quote up here for you because it's just that good. He says, prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are its threshold. Adoration, its sanctuary. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, its bread and wine. In it, that is in prayer, God shows himself to us. And indeed, God does show himself to us in prayer. They were together and they were praying. They were also studying the Bible. Now, this is an interesting one because you'll be like, wait a minute, I don't see Bible study in this. I don't see them studying the, the Word of God here. And They didn't have the Bible as we have it. They only had the Old Testament then. Yes, but look in chapter 1, verse 20. Here's what we see. Uh, this is Peter, and you know this was a parenthetical up here about you know who this Judas was and what he did. Um, 
for the sake of the reader. But then in verse 20, it continues Peter speaking, and he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So they were involved in Bible study. How do I know? Because Peter quotes two Psalms of David. Now, I suppose, and with good reason, that the Holy Spirit didn't just install these verses into Peter. The Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. We are not robots. I have never in my time as a Christian in my more than 20 years as a, a believer in Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit ever brought to mind scriptures that I had not known before, that I had not studied or at least read. The Holy Spirit will call scriptures to mind all the time as you speak, as you preach, as you do the ministry that you do, as you share the gospel, as you contend for the faith with people, as you pray to the Lord. These, these verses continually come to you for you to use, and the Holy Spirit will do that for you. But he doesn't bring you ones you haven't read. He doesn't bring you ones, indeed, that you probably haven't read carefully to understand. And a verse brought to mind has at times been obscure to me, but never completely unknown. The Holy Spirit works with what we have in here and in here. The Holy Spirit works with the scriptures. We have to remember that Jesus seems to have imparted the Holy Spirit at least on the twelve earlier. As he appeared to them uh, right after his resurrection, he says to them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then further, we have to understand that he had opened their mind to understand the scriptures. In Luke 24, as Luke, uh, who is also the author of Acts, as he is closing his gospel, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit didn't originate on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's its most dramatic movement by far, for sure, but the Holy Spirit operated throughout the Old Covenant. Those who wrote the Old Testament uh, scriptures are described by Peter as having been moved by the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist was spoken of as being filled with the Spirit even from, from his mother's womb. So in other words, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit his whole life, way before Pentecost. Here we have Elizabeth, his mother, filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary visited her, and, and John reacted in her womb to the presence of Jesus, who was then just conceived in Mary. And then in Luke 2.25, as they bring Jesus as, as an infant to the temple for his dedication, uh, here, here the Holy Spirit comes upon a man named Simeon as he met Jesus uh, there at the temple and, and said words of encouragement to Joseph and Mary and prophesied over Jesus. And as it did, um, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active already during the ministry of Jesus. It's working apparently now with the disciples as they're making these connections to the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus having opened their mind to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit being operative there to give them understanding. Now, 
the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost was something utterly different and filled them with the power for the proclamation of the gospel like never before. But God was never restrained from sending the Holy Spirit to give the disciples guidance and insight, even at this time. So here they are in prayer. Peter thinks about the loss of Judas, and he's convinced for some reason that they need a twelfth. Peter comes up with these two verses. Let's take a look at what he came up with. Uh, we'll first go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 20 there. And in chapter 1, verse 20, here's what it says, written in the book of Psalms, maze can't become desolate. This is from Psalm 69 and uh, verse 25. In Psalm 69, 25, may there can't be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Now, why did he take this from here? Why did he have some reason this thinks of Judas? Well, the psalm is about the enemies of God and those who were plotting against, at that time, David. And as we know from study of the scriptures, David is, is like Christ in a way. Christ, of course, comes from his line, but many things in the book of, or in the life of David, parallel things of Jesus Christ, because indeed David's a king and Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Now, David was not perfect like Jesus, didn't do miracles, things like that. But nevertheless, there's parallels. And many times when he wrote in the Psalms, it would end up speaking not just of his own, but carried by the Holy Spirit, it would end up speaking the things of Christ as well. And so look at this, a clear reference to Jesus is right here in verse 21 of the same Psalm. They gave me poison for food for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And as you know, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, they gave him wine mixed with gall uh, to drink. And so this is powerfully important. In verse 26 is even more profound where it says this, they persecute him. Now, David's now speaking in the third person of someone else being persecuted. He himself is lamenting and asking for God help for the persecution he's facing. But now he speaks of a third person. He speaks of someone else. He says, they persecute him whom you, and he's speaking to the Lord, have struck down. Well, who was struck down by the Lord? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was. It was the wrath of God that was, that was upon him on the cross. That's why he prayed in the garden for the Lord, for the Father to take the cup from him. But the cup was his wrath and the cup ultimately was poured out upon Jesus. And so David in the spirit prophesies, there's going to be this one that the, that the Lord strikes down, but yet he's persecuted by others. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter reads this. The Holy Spirit says, aha, that's about Jesus. And look, this is about Judas and backs him up a verse to realize, oh, may he be desolate. You know, he's dead now. Yeah, that's a desolation. His place is a desolation. The land which he purchased is empty because indeed he himself, the owner, has died. And so it says then, also, let another take his office. Well, this is from Psalm 109. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. It's obvious that the disciples had the Old Testament and were studying it. Where did they get the scriptures? Well, they had connections. As we will find out, as we learn more about who these people are, uh, we know already from the Gospels, John had connections to the high priest. And we know that Nicodemus 
was a Pharisee. And, and so he would be wealthy and he would have access to the scriptures. And we also know that Nicodemus or that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man, some kind of a leader among the Jews. And so we do know that among the disciples were some that would have the influence and the wealth to be able to have a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. And as Peter speaks from those things in chapter two, we're going to see many, many more Old Testament scriptures paraded out and interpreted for us that prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he fulfilled all things, all things pertaining to his office. So they were involved in Bible study, and it's an interesting thing to see. It truly is. They were also involved in administration, and I've got to be honest, that's a word I absolutely hate. The I am not a gifted administrator. I can study the Word of God. I can pray. I can preach the Word of God. But when it comes to actually organizing and running the business and, and the, the business side of things for a church, which has to be done because anytime you're dealing with people, they need to be managed and organized. That's not my strength, and I don't like it, but look, they're taking it on here in chapter 1. They're involved in administration. What do I mean by that? What I mean is very plainly is that they're looking at their leadership. There's 11 of them. They feel there should be a 12th, and then they actually have a discussion. What should be the qualifications for this 12th? What should that look like? Now, I don't want to get into a debate about whether or not the disciples should have done this because some people will argue in Acts chapter 1 is an example. They didn't need a 12th. We never hear of this guy Matthias again, so he was obviously of no account. Paul should have been a 12th because he was ultimately chosen by God. But the other things we suggest, I suggest, that they were being faithful. Instead of waiting for the guidance of the Spirit, they cast lots. And as pointed out, just because Pentecost hadn't happened yet, there's no reason to suggest that they didn't have an influence of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, regarding lots, the Old Testament says that God has the lot. <laughs> that if you were to cast lots for a thing, but notice, they narrowed down the qualifications first. They found two qualified men. Then and only then did they cast lots to see which one it ought to be. The disciples were acting reasonably here. It had not been mentioned, had it not been mentioned that they were in prayer, and had it not been mentioned that Peter quoted these scriptures and these particular fulfillments, then I might be tempted to entertain notions that they went rogue to do this, to appoint this twelfth man. But I think they were right to do this. And again, some will argue, well, this Matthias never shows up again. Some of the others don't show up again. And we don't hear about them again, but we recognize them as some of the 12. Some will argue that Paul was God's choice for number 12. And if you have Matthias and you have Paul, now we have 13 and you can't do that. Well, I would look to the Old Testament and I would say there were 12 tribes of Israel. But most of the times when they are enumerated, that is when they're listed out, there's 13. The reason is Jacob took his blessing, put it on the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. You rarely hear about the tribe of Joseph, but you hear about the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, 13, if you count the Levites who were dedicated to God. What might be most important here, and we don't need to argue over those things, is this definition of an apostle that we see here in verses 21 and 22. 
This is the definition of the office of apostle, and it is defined as one who accompanied us, according to Peter, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, which we accounted in the beginning of the chapter. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he lays out then the clear description, the clear definition of an apostle. The reason why this is important is that there are people today who will claim to be apostles. And we have to point out that in the book of Ephesians, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Is built upon that foundation because the foundation is complete. You cannot build a building until the foundation is complete. And the time of the apostles, the time of the prophets, is now complete. Now, some will argue that Paul doesn't fit the criteria of an apostle because Paul wasn't with Jesus all of that time. But Paul was appointed by Jesus personally for the task. And Paul even describes himself as the least of the apostles, as one, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, as one untimely born. In other words, Paul knew he was unusual. Paul knew he broke the rules. But Paul was the God-given exception to those rules. This is the definition of an apostle, and if someone were to claim he is an apostle today, I would say he is mistaken. He is not an apostle. He is perhaps called as an elder or a pastor, uh, per, you know, some kind of a servant, perhaps an evangelist. But no, not an apostle. The apostles are gone, and we have their writings, so we need them, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to be complete, so we need them no longer. So they were uh, involved in administration, and this is something uh, important, is that they were taking care of business. Now let's look at one more thing. This can be summed up in obedience. They were being obedient, and that's probably the overarching lesson from these verses that we looked at today, this last half of chapter 1 here, is that they were being obedient to Jesus. Let me show you what I mean by this. If we go to chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus says this, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is important because they were being obedient to this command. They were in Jerusalem and they were waiting. They weren't going about trying to, you know, tell everyone about Jesus. They were waiting for this gift of the Holy Spirit to begin to bear witness. But they weren't waiting without being productive. They were praying. They were studying the Word of God. They were carrying out administration. They were spending time together, which is critically important in the church. This is what it's really about, isn't it? Obedience is what it's really about. That we would obey the commands of Christ, the commands to love one another, to go and make disciples, to be his witnesses, to be holy as he is holy, to pray, to gather together, to worship in spirit and truth. These are all the commands of the Lord Jesus. And indeed, he says this about his commands. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He told them very plainly on the night that he was arrested. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and then suddenly be selective about what to obey is to fool yourself. Mind you, to obey Christ is what makes you is not what makes you a disciple, but it is the mark of every true disciple. And it may seem burdensome. It may seem like a lot to, okay, I've got to be his witnesses. I've got to be holy as he was holy. I've got to pray. I've got to, to know the word of God. I've got to be with these people, the church all the time, which are annoying except for potlucks. I really like those. And this can seem burdensome. But if you truly believe, obedience will become your greatest desire. And if you truly believe, you'll receive the Holy Spirit of God to give you the power to prioritize obedience to Him. This is how Jesus could say this in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the invitation today, is to come and to find that rest. When the Israelites were headed for the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God referred to it as a rest because it was typical, it was their typological of the true rest in Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews illuminates us to this fact that, that Jesus is the true rest that they were talking about. To come into the rest of God is to come into Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The invitation today is simply that, to obey Jesus as our disciples here in Acts chapter 1 gave us an example. Let us obey Jesus. And I, I know it's hard sometimes because it doesn't feel like you have the direction from God. You know, Jesus wasn't just with you a few days ago telling you precisely what to do. We have this Word of God, we have this Holy Spirit, and we have this church, and sometimes the church is a bit disorganized. And I can be honest, sometimes the Christian life is just this vague, amorphous thing that I can't seem to get my hands around. I don't know what to do right now today. But we do know what to do right now today. To obey Him. To obey Him in the simple things that we know to obey Him in. To meet Him in prayer. To study the Word of God. To be His witnesses. All these things. But first and foremost, before any of those can happen, do you know what the first thing was that Jesus commanded when He came and began His ministry? He had two commands. He joined them together. And it's right here accounted in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Yeah, chapter 1 verse 15. Right away, the book of Mark gets right into this. As Jesus came praying, or came preaching, he preached the same thing John the Baptist preached. And that is this, two commands, repent and believe in the gospel. See how they're underlined in the text there. They are commands, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means to turn from our sins, to not try to do things our way anymore, but to turn to God's way of doing things, to forsake our sins, our way of doing things, leave them behind, and then to go forward into faith in Christ and to move ahead 
in obeying him. Repent and believe. And this word believe, this is a, a word that's stronger than merely being convinced. It's more than just the idea of, oh yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. No, no, no. This is a trust. This is a trust that Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. This is a trust that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and he has the power to raise you up on the last day. If you will but believe, trust in him. This obeying of Jesus, it comes with a powerful promise. We looked a moment ago at John 12, 15, where he says, uh, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Look what he says later in that same, just same paragraph, really. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's the promise. I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is powerfully important. In the Bible, love is not presented as a mere emotion. These words here translated as love carry with them a significance of action that this kind of love is always accompanied by an action. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. In other words, it's not just an emotion we feel. It's volitional. It's a whole person. It's, it gets into our will, and, and we want to obey, and we follow him and do his, his will. And this is the love with which he went to the cross. And this is the kind of love that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is love of the biblical sort, love that has action. And if it says that the Father will love you and the Son will love you, that means that that carries with it an action, and that action manifests itself in several ways. It manifests itself in eternal life, manifests itself in the coming of the Spirit, the power to live a life pleasing to God, the will to live a life pleasing to God. But it also comes with something powerfully important, and that is this manifestation of Jesus. This word manifest, you know, have you ever heard someone say, you know, if God would just give me a sign? Well, first of all, let me say, He did. He gave you the sign that Jesus rose from the dead because the entire New Testament, the Gospels and the book of Acts and, and all the letters, they make no sense whatsoever if Jesus did not in fact raise from the dead. This is your sign. He rose from the dead. Nothing here makes sense without the resurrection. But he has also given you eyewitness testimony to the fact of the resurrection and a great cloud of witnesses all around it throughout church history, almost 2,000 years now. Those who have done unusual and self-sacrificing things in the belief of the resurrection. If you come to Jesus unconditionally, if you surrender, that's what repentance is, if you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation, you'll know this manifestation of him. It comes with the love of the Father and the Son. It says, and manifest myself to him. The word manifest means to show or appear. It can carry the idea 
of making something apparent to you. In other words, it is presented before you for you to see the reality of it. Jesus was made manifest in the flesh. And if you believe in him and you keep his commandments and you love him, he will love you and he will manifest himself to you. That means that he will make himself sensible, detectable to you. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that he'll appear to you visibly or that he'll appear to you even audibly, but even better than that, he will appear to you spiritually, which is something deeper than the senses, something actually even more real than the physicality that we are faced with all the time. He will give you his spirit and his spirit will testify that you are his and that he is yours. Think about this. What would drive people to do what the disciples of Jesus do? So we read in the book of Acts, there's going to be a lot of persecution. There's going to be a lot of hatred toward the church. There's going to be some of them killed for the faith. And this has been the testimony of all of history. Jesus had to have been so real to them so manifested to them that they were so sure of that reality that they could face certain death, even in the face of danger. Obey Jesus today and he will manifest himself to you. It begins with repentance and faith. Pray for both today. Pray with me now. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, that you have given your son we thank you for what you're doing here and that you make yourself manifest to your people. Lord, you were, you were so real to the, the apostles that they were there, that they were gathered together, that they had spent like 40 days with him learning. But Lord, we see that in the coming centuries, as the eyewitnesses faded away, the manifestation continued. You continued to show yourself to people age after age, generation after generation, in such a way that they did miraculous things for you, surrendering their lives, turning to you, and, and showing the manifestation of Christ in changed lives, changed character, and self-sacrifice. Lord, I pray today that you would increase our faith, that those of us who need to repent immediately will do so. And indeed, all of us need to, to some degree. But Lord, I pray especially for those who do not know you. I pray, Lord, that you would break into their life right now. Make yourself known to them. Give them the faith to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they may live. Lord, I pray that you'll do this great work today. I pray that you'll continue to work in your church and that you will give us boldness, that we will follow the example of those who went before as they prayed and you gave them of your spirit and you empowered them to preach. Lord, that is our desire. And I pray that you would satisfy that desire, that you would answer our prayers, that you would give us boldness and give us light. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's always a blessing to me. I get to study all this, and, and I get to be convicted by these things before you, and then I get to take it out on you, and that's our great relationship. But 
Thank you for joining us, and I encourage you to contact us. You can find out more about our church at whitesrun.org. That's whitesrun.org. And you can email me personally at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, where I will answer your questions or concerns. I will pray for you. If you have suggestions or objections to what you've heard, please bring those too. Bring the criticism. Uh, the Lord may be using you to correct a brother. And so I pray that you'll contact us with whatever your, your thoughts are and that we may interact and we may indeed have some mutual benefit. Uh, we praise the Lord and may Him, may, may Him receive all the glory in Jesus' name.